Um, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, I know Stuart was doing a series on the reliability of the gospel accounts. Before that, he told me he was doing the big picture of the Old Testament. And I told him I would uh, take last week and then this week and sort of zoom in on a couple passages in the Old Testament that reveal the character of our God. I was thinking even about those prayer requests that um, it's the character of God revealed in Scripture that both builds our faith and um, just is an anchor for our soul in times of trial. And uh, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, it's not so well known of a passage, so all the better for us to, to enter into sort of a group meditation on this. So let me read it for us. 2 Samuel chapter 9, start at verse 1. Now this is after David has been established as the king. He's in Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where God has declared um, his covenant with David. Um, and so after, after David settled there, then um, he says this in chapter 9, verse 1. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? You remember Jonathan was the son of Saul, who, uh, and Jonathan and David were best friends and had covenanted together. Um, and Saul, of course, was the king who tried to kill David. But now Jonathan and Saul have both been killed by the Philistines. Okay, that's, you know, but, but here David's asking. Um, verse 2, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog? like me. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. Now, I, I think, you know, we don't have a lot of time, you know. <laughs> Uh, but three things I guess I want us to, to dig into, and we'll kind of do these in order. It, first is, what do we see here when we look at who Mephibosheth is? Um, I, I really think that there are a number of, number of ways in which um, this, this passage is really a beautiful picture of the gospel. We want to look at who is it that gets saved by looking at Mephibosheth. We want to look at um, really what is the nature 
of the gospel, um, a picture of uh, the beauty of salvation by God's grace. And there are a lot of things this passage teaches us about that. And then we're going to look at another passage, the way this story in the life of Mephibosheth um, is carried out later in 2 Samuel. We will see a picture of how grace changes us. Now, let me just give you a little introduction. Um, there are, there, this is one of those pictures. David is, is you know, somewhat of a mixed character. There are times in which he models and foreshadows very well the true hesed or covenant love or loving kindness, sometimes it's translated, of the king. There are times in which David, as the king, really foreshadows um, our true king and his love and his faithfulness. This is one of those passages. But lest you think that David is a wonderful guy, the Bathsheba incident is coming up very soon after this. Okay? So, you know, like all the, the really the Old Testament books, even when they picture um, someone as giving us a taste of the grace of God and his covenant faithfulness, they always, they always kind of break down. They always leave us wanting more. Yes, there are times when the kindness of God is, is modeled really well by David. And yet, the story of David as a whole leaves us wanting a true king who will love like this all the time and forever. Okay? So we're not sort of holding up David. What we're holding up is the grace and the faithfulness of God. At times, comes through David. But often it doesn't. But here it does, and through that we can learn about the love of our true king. Um, and I, I really see uh, what a beautiful picture this is, that the king loves lame, helpless, bitter traitors. Do we see ourselves as that? But let's, let's look at this picture of who gets saved. What do, you, what do you notice here about Mephibosheth? Describe him. Talk about him. Um, just just uh, jump out here, whatever you see here. Tell me about Mephibosheth and what we learn about him from this passage. Okay, why do you say that? A dead dog. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think, you know, probably people 100 years ago, um, before kind of the self-esteem movement, probably wouldn't have pointed that out. Um, but but it, it's, it's worth talking about. Is he a dead dog? Or does he have a bad self-image? Yes, why? Good. He's crippled. Um, a couple times it's mentioned sort of his family heritage. What, what do you think the significance of that is? I mean, certainly he's the son of Jonathan, but it doesn't stop there, does it? Continually refers to him as from the house of Saul. Now think about, you know, his statement that he's a dead dog. What, what, what is being of the house of Saul, um, how does that connect to him thinking of himself as a dead dog? Why? It was. Yeah, it, it's standard practice in the ancient Near East and, you know, beyond. Um, that extends up to pretty recent times and probably still goes on, I would imagine. That if there is a regime change, the best way for the new king to consolidate his power, and everybody knew this and everybody accepted this, was to search out and kill all of the descendants of the former regime. Because if you didn't do that, you left open the possibility of somebody that could be held up um, and somebody who could be advanced as a, a rival and a coup could be uh, attempted. So it, was, it would have been expected that Mephibosheth would have been killed. So, you know, you've got to think, what does he think is going on when he's brought 
from Lodabar to the king. Why, why is he in Lodabar? What, what, why is he there? He's hiding. I mean, David doesn't know he's even still alive. They have to do a little bit of investigation to even find this guy. So consider this guy's case. I mean, he's a guy who's in hiding, who really was the heir to the throne. But now he's in hiding. He's lame in both feet. We'll talk about that in a minute. But imagine what it would be like to all of your life be raised in hiding, knowing that you were destined for the throne, but it never came to pass. And now you live in Lodabar. Does anybody know what Lodabar means? Maybe your Bible has a little, little note. It means place of no pasture. So he's living in the place of no pasture. Isaiah 57 has an interesting verse. In verse 20 it says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. He is living in the place of no rest. Not a good, it's not a good place to be. He's living in hiding. But he's, he's a royal son who, who's living in hiding, and nobody knows about the fact. And I imagine, you know, this is a bit speculation, but I, I don't think it's, it's too extreme of a speculation. I imagine he's probably heard stories about what should have been. I, I think as, as he grows and, and begins to realize, why am I here in Lodabar rather than sitting on a throne in Jerusalem? And the fact is, the reason he's in Lodabar has nothing to do with him. He's in a place of no pasture, but it wasn't really his fault. He's suffering consequences from his grandfather. It's interesting. What about this idea about him being a cripple, a helpless man, lame both feet? You, you said this wasn't a, a culture that, ancient Near East culture that looked kindly or, uh, upon people who couldn't pull their own weight. Um, but why is he crippled? Anybody remember how he got crippled? He was dropped as a child. 2 Samuel chapter 4 says this. Um, it's, I'll read it to you. It basically is um, when the son of Saul heard basically that Saul and Jonathan had been killed. It's in chapter uh, 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. It says this. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, the news that they'd been killed. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. So he's crippled in both feet. He's a victim of the sin of his grandfather, the fleeing, the fall, the permanent disability, the end of his future as the royal heir. All of this happened to him while he was still too young to even understand what had happened. He's, he's a miserable guy. I mean, I mean in, in, as far as Sin has affected him. I think sometimes in reform circles, we have a harder time understanding ourselves as being wounded and harmed by sin being in the world than we do seeing ourselves as sinners. I think, you know, there, there are some maybe denominations or some, some Christians that have an easier time always talking about how they're victims, um, but don't maybe own up to their own responsibility. But I think in reform circles, we tend to go to the other side of that extreme. It's just my experience, um, but I, I think I could back it up if we did a survey. It's easier for us to say I'm a sinner than it is to say I've been wounded and I've been sinned against. And yet, both are true. Both are true. Everybody is both a sinner and a victim. Everybody in this room has been wounded and harmed by the fact that sin is in the world. But I think that, uh, you know, again, there's probably, I, I don't think that, that 
Mephibosheth is a, is a pure-hearted character. He didn't come looking for the king. He didn't come and pledge his allegiance to the king. Um, he's still living in um, this, this place of no pasture. Um, I, like, I like this line. Eugene Peterson has a little book about the life of David. He says this. He says, Mephibosheth was the only living heir of the once great house of Saul, but nobody knew it. Because his life would have been in danger if that information was revealed. He grew up with his royal identity suppressed. Grew up with all the privileges of royalty denied him. And both conditions were aggravated by his disability. And I, I imagine it would be pretty easy for him to think, I'm crippled and David's the reason why. And now he's bringing me to Lodabar. Great. Things are going from bad to worse. Terrified, most likely. Bitter. Helpless. And I think, you know, gosh, there's just so many ways that this passage just screams to us about our condition. Don't you think? The, the idea that we, are, that we are royal, do you realize, you know, that Adam and Eve were royal people? This is why if you ever read in the Chronicles of Narnia, it's always, you know, King, King Adam and Queen Eve. Lewis picked up on that. But it's, it's there in the Bible as well, that Adam and Eve were created to be royal persons ruling in God's place, his creation. They truly are Lord, Adam, and Lady Eve. And, you know, th th there's such a, a wonderful picture here that when, you know, the, the sin plunges us, it sort of sends us out of the place of rest, out of the garden, out of the peace, out of the place where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. It sends them to a place where their work is going to be made more difficult, where the pains of childbirth will be more difficult. Um, and yet, all of us still have royal blood in our veins. And yet, so often, our, our condition is, is, is masked. And yet, there's still part of us that knows that we were made for something so much greater, right? We live in this kind of, kind of tension. And we live with, with this, uh, an appropriate death sentence over our heads. Now, we could argue about whether this custom was appropriate or not. But nobody reading this passage would have questioned whether Mephibosheth should have been killed. Everybody reading here in this story would expect that, that David is going to kill Mephibosheth and solidify his hold on power. And, and I think here, you know, you have to ask, have you ever known what it feels like to stand before God as a helpless, exposed traitor who's been brought out of hiding to, to hear the sentence of death pronounced over you? That's what Mephibosheth feels like. And um, I, I, I was thinking about this. There's um, two quotes that I like that really contrast the view of mankind. What is the actual view of mankind? One quote is by John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, and he says this, Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. That's been the historic Christian understanding of the state of mankind, of what we really have done to God. Then there's Hobart Maurer, professor of psychology at Harvard, former president of the American Psychological Association. He wrote this in um, Psychology Today in an article. For several decades, we psychologists have looked on the idea of sin and moral accountability as a great evil and declared our liberation from it as epic-making. But at length, we discovered that to be free in this sense, to have the excuse of being sick rather than sinful, is also to court the danger of becoming lost. 
For in becoming amoral, ethically neutral and free, we have cut off the very roots of our being, lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity, and with neurotics, we find ourselves asking, who am I? What is my deepest destiny? What does living mean? And when he wrote this, as you can imagine, he got a whole lot of angry letters. Most of them asking, what are you saying? That we should go back to religion? And several months later, he killed himself. If you, if you lose the sense or the, the identity of, that the Bible describes, if you lose that, what Maurer is saying is you lose yourself. You don't understand how you relate to God. You don't even know who you are. And we have to have an, sort of an adequate diagnosis to be healed. I mean, I think, you know, if, I, I won't spend any time on this, but I'll just throw this question out for you to think about. What do you think you deserve? It really is the key to dealing with your bitterness. What do you think you deserve? Do you think that what you have is, is just beyond belief so much better than what you deserve? Not to diminish the reality of suffering and woundedness and even the ways we've been sinned against, yet still, the Bible would say it's so much less than we deserve. And the way to attack bitterness is to, to really thank God for what we do have. Um, let's, let's move on to the next thing. Where, where, how do we see here a picture of the beauty of God's salvation? How, how does David model for us well the love of God? Thoughts? Yeah, this eating at the king's table forever. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I'm going to bring this guy to Jerusalem and have him eat at my table forever. What else does he restore to him? That's right. Yes. Yes, yeah, more than drawing, he has him brought. A.W. Pink has a great little sermon just on, on that little phrase. Thank the Lord for bringing grace. You know? Yeah, the Lord takes the initiative, just as David takes the initiative here. And why does David take this initiative? Most likely, yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 And, um, and why did David have him brought? What's his motivation? How does the passage start? What? Yeah, it's, you know, his covenant with Jonathan. In that covenant with Jonathan, they pledged to take care of each other's families, but they made that pledge when neither of them had families. It's pretty interesting. This is why, you know, we talk about you know, marriage is a covenant relationship where you stand before the Lord and all these witnesses and say, you know, I pledge to love you for better, for worse, for sickness and your health, not knowing what the future will hold. You ever think about that? That's really kind of insane. Um, but the only way you can really do that with any kind of integrity is if you hear the Lord making those kind of vows to you. Vows that will not be broken by death. 
but vows that actually are brought into, into reality or into actualization through the death of the Lord Jesus. And here, David says, covenants matter. Covenants matter. The covenant love of the Lord is such that it spills over into David's life. I mean, again, this is two chapters after the Lord has pledged his covenant love to David. And it's really interesting because back there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David said, hey, I want to build a house for the Lord. It's not right that the Lord is living in a tent, in a tabernacle. He doesn't have a temple. I'm living in a palace. And the Lord is still in this tent. And so he says to Samuel, he says, um, I, I want to build a temple for the Lord. What do you think? And Samuel says, yeah, great. Good idea. Go for it. And that night, the Lord appears to Samuel and says, that's not what I asked for. I didn't say to do that. I am content to be a vagabond God traveling around in a tent as long as my people are unsettled. And, 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 and said, you know, tell David that his house needs to be established first, and I'm going to establish his house. And, and David responds to that and says, this is overwhelming. This grace that God would say, I'm going to put you before me. I'm going to establish your house. And, and, and as David, the experience of that, it's, it's right after that, that he can say, who can I love in that kind of way? Is there anybody left of the house of Jonathan that I can show this kind of hesed covenant love to? God, God takes the initiative because his love for another. Just as David takes the initiative, not because he has any kind of relationship with Mephibosheth, and you don't want to overdraw this, but the motivation is his love for Jonathan. And you need to understand that the reason that God comes after you is because of his love for Christ and the covenant that God the Father and God the Son made together before you were born. You didn't have a place at the, at the negotiation table. Look at Romans 5. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ by God's sheer grace. It's not something that you had any ability to influence. You're completely dependent on the mercy of God and his love for Christ. But of course you realize that that's, that's a pretty solid, secure hope. Because does God ever cease to love his son? He lived in, in Lodabar, and David brings him to Jerusalem. God's love is for helpless traitors, right? Again, this is the great surprise ending. The gospel is always the great surprise ending, the great reversal. Um, Ralph Davis, professor, you probably had him, didn't you? Yeah. He says about this, Hesed, often translated covenant love or loving kindness, is love that is willing to commit itself to another by making its promise a matter of solemn record. And when he says... When David says, surely you will eat at my table forever, that's the language of an oath or a vow. Whenever you read that in the Old Testament, surely I will do this. That's, that's God or somebody saying, I am vowing this. I am making this commitment. Is there anyone left in the enemy camp that I can love, is what, is what David is saying. Anybody in the house of Saul. And then notice, the, the passage doesn't refer to him just as Mephibosheth. continually refers to him, Mephibosheth, son of Saul son of Jonathan, son of Saul. Just as it refers to David time and time again as the king. And so what you have here is a picture of the king saying, is there anybody left of the enemy camp that I can love and invite to eat at my table, my royal table forever? Do you believe that you've experienced that? Or do you think, you know, God's grace is big enough to sort of let me, you know, sort of wash the floors in the palace? You know, 
okay, God's, God's grace is big enough to get me off the hook. Maybe I'm not put to death. But do you realize that he vows himself to let you eat at his table like a royal son and a royal daughter forever? I think sometimes we, we don't see the goodness of the grace of the gospel big enough. But this is such a wonderful picture. And for me, just an image that my heart can begin to respond to. I'm a helpless trader who's been, who's been brought to the king's table and made to eat forever. Not only that, he's given all of the inheritance he lost plus some. Right? David says, I want to restore to you all of the lands that belonged to your, to your grandfather and give you all of his servants and their sons and daughters to be your servants. Now, we won't debate the morality of slavery and, and servanthood and all that kind of stuff. I know that that's an issue that comes up in this passage, but we're already, I guess, supposed to be done. Um, so, but, but just think about that, that image. There's a great line in... Um, what is it, in Isaac Watts' hymn, uh, Joy to the World, where it talks about, and I, I wrote it down because I can never remember exactly how it goes, um, how he gives to us in, in, in the gospel what we get in Christ is more blessings than um, Adam lost. That in, in Christ we have more blessings than Adam lost. And that's what you see here, that he gets more than he lost, even. Um, let's move to the last point. We see... Um, well, last two points. We see a, a, certainly a picture of the privileges the gospel brings. Let me just point out a couple of these. He gets peace. First thing the, first thing the king says to him is Mephibosheth. And isn't it a wonderful picture of the way God calls us by name? That salvation is intimate, it's personal. And then the next thing the king says is fear not. He gets called by name, and the king says fear not. He gets a place at the table, and again, if you would remember one thing from today, it's this. The gospel is that the king's enemies are made to sit and eat at his table forever. He's given the inheritance his family lost, and he's made like a royal son. Look at how this picture, how this grace changes him, though. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a couple things here. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, we read how David had to flee when his own son became a traitor. Absalom staged a coup against his father, and David has to flee. And Ziba goes and joins David out in the desert. But Mephibosheth stays in Jerusalem. And Ziba goes out to join David in the desert. He brings food, and David asks him, where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, Mephibosheth stayed in Jerusalem because he's hoping that all the political chaos will lead to a situation in when, which when he might emerge as king again. So Ziba goes out to join David on the run out in the desert. Mephibosheth stays behind in the, in the palace. And Ziba says he's hoping that maybe Absalom will die and in the chaos, chaos people recognize that he has uh, the right to the throne and the, he's the rightful heir and they will install him as king. Then in chapter 19, David returns after Absalom is killed and he talks to Mephibosheth. And here... Um, we might look at this, second chapter, Second Samuel 19, verse 24 says this, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. This is as David is coming into the city. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord the king, since I, your servant and lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. 
And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death for my lord the king. See, he can't get over that, can he? But you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything, now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. Now this is interesting. I mean, uh, Mephibosheth bears all the marks of somebody who's been in mourning since David left. And he cares more for the return of the king than he does for any of his possessions or anything that he suffered. I think it's, you know, Second Samuel's way of telling us that Mephibosheth is true of heart, that the grace of the gospel has changed him. What, what sticks out to him, really, he mentions the slander. He mentions, okay, this is what happened. I wanted to go join you, but I couldn't. But his real emphasis is, do whatever you please. You're the king. What right do I have to make any more appeals to you? You've given me so much more than I deserved. I deserve death. And you gave me life. You gave me a place at your table. You gave me all the inheritance that my grandfather lost by his sin. And then David actually divides the land. Ziba now gets half the land. Mephibosheth does suffer loss, but he doesn't even care says, let him take everything, now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. It's amazing. His heart has been turned toward the king, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. Uh, a couple applications and then a story. To see the sovereign pursuing love of God changes you. And if your heart is cold, the place to begin is to say, Lord, help me to remember what you've done and to not take it for granted. We so often take it for granted. Of course I get to eat at the king's table. If that doesn't amaze you, it's going to be pretty difficult for the grace of the gospel to actually have impact and to begin to deal with your bitterness and your frustration and your cold-heartedness. And we continually need to be changed. Another application, I guess. Um, because, again, two, two chapters later, David's weakness um, and his sin with Bathsheba is exposed. He's not a perfect guy. We never get to the point where, you know, if you have one shining moment where you love like this, that you can kind of pat yourself on the back and know that you'll never struggle anymore. We see that promises really matter to the king. The true king is the true promise keeper who enables us to keep our promises. Promises, the, the, the grace of God is so big that he can give us, he can set us free to make promises not knowing what the future holds but knowing who holds the future. I love these words of Martin Luther. He said, I know not where my, where my um, guide leads me, but well do I know my guide. That's our hope. I'll tell you a, a story. I wonder um, about the love and the way it changes us and the, the role of love. How many of you all know about General Custer, George Custer? Heard about George Custer? Yeah. Did you know he had a wife named Libby? How many people know about his wife? Um, but they had been married while he was still out fighting the Indians. And there was one time when he hadn't seen her all summer because he was out uh, fighting. And he just decided that he had to see her. So he gathered up all his men. He made them march for 55 hours just to show up and surprise her. The march killed two of his men, several of their horses, because it was just overwhelming physical strain. He really put his whole military career 
at risk. He was court-martialed and stripped of his rank for doing it. And the Battle of Little Bullhorn, he was trying to get back in the good graces of his superior officers because of this really rash thing that he did. The reason he went and fought the Battle of Little Bighorn was because he and his men, where he and his men were slaughtered, was because he was trying to get back in his army's good graces. He risked everything to see his wife. It was probably the craziest thing he ever did. But Libby wrote in her journal about that day, she wrote these words, for me, there was one perfect day. Have you ever felt that loved? The Lord doesn't just risk, doesn't just risk his life. But the, the craziness of the love of God, does that touch your heart? How crazy is it for the king to say, is there anybody left in the enemy camp that I can love, that I can invite to eat at my table, that I can entrust the spread of my kingdom to? And yet the Lord does that. I mean, David loves well here, but it's just a foreshadowing of the love of David's greater son, Jesus. David has his moments, but our God loves like this all the time and forever. The security of the love we have because our God is one who loves cripples and traitors and makes them royal sons and daughters. It's good news. Any uh, last thoughts? No, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We pray that this picture of your love would touch our hearts, not just our heads. That we would know there isn't just one perfect day, but you love like this every day. And you will never love us less than like this. Lord, help us to connect with your love more. Help your word, Lord, to speak the truth of the gospel to us. Help give us your spirit to open our eyes to understand the outrageous love that we have in the gospel, that you would love enemies and traitors, that you would love people who are helpless, that you would love people that live in Lodabar, and you would bring us to a place of rest, a place of security, even a place of privilege beyond what we can imagine. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us never to take it for granted and that you would help us to love in this way the people that you've brought into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.